Thank you for tuning in to More To Be Said. Today's podcast has uh, some sensitive content to it. So if you have little ones around, you might want to pause this and listen to it later. We truly hope that you are blessed by this interview. You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Welcome to part two of More to Be Said with our interview with Beth Sadati and Sam Eaton. If you haven't listened to part one, you may want to go back as it's going to provide some important context for this conversation. Here in part two, we're really going to get into some tips and wisdom around the conversation related to suicide. And I kick things off sharing a story from my teenage years and struggling with suicide. When I was roughly uh, 13 and a half to 14 years old, we moved schools. We moved about 20, 30 minutes away. My dad transitioned jobs, so we decided to move somewhere closer so that my dad wouldn't have an over an hour drive. And what I found was I was three months into my senior, my, sorry, my freshman year of high school. And what I found was uh, being a new kid at a new school was profoundly difficult as a freshman. I have this really sad and depressing poem I wrote in Beth's class at 14 years old. And I remember to this day some of the lines with that poem, but the very first line started with a lonely boy at a lonely school. And I just, that's how I felt. The town that I moved into where Beth grew up, everybody there had kind of grown up in the same town. So everybody knew everybody, but nobody knew me. Part of my backstory is right before that, I had broken my pelvic bone uh, when I was 13 years old, dancing at a school dance at my previous school. So my entire identity was wrapped up in athletics. And then I was a freshman in this new school and I couldn't compete in anything. And so I didn't know how to connect. I didn't know how to fit in. I didn't know how to become a part of the crowd. That led to a very dark place for me. You don't know this, Beth, but I also struggled with suicidal ideations. And when I was, I think, either a freshman or sophomore in high school, things got really bad and actually went down in my basement, made a noose out of like a, a, a sheet, hung it over the rafters in our basement. And that's when I heard the still small voice. And I just remember saying to God, if you will, if you will do something with my life besides all this pain and hurt and loneliness that I feel, um, I'll give you one more chance. And I don't know how serious I was or wasn't, but in that moment, all of the emotions, all of the pain, everything was coming to a climactic head for me. And honestly, Beth, it, it was your investment, along with about a handful of others, that saved my life. And I don't know if I've ever told you that, but thank you. So I want to talk about some practical tips and tools. People who are tuning into this, um, some of them may struggle with themselves. Some of them may have been wounded or hurt by suicide in their own families. And some may have children right now they're worried about, they're anxious for. So what wisdom and advice do you have? What signs can people see? Um, Sam, do you want to go first and jump in? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that makes depression and mental illness is so hard to fight is you're really battling on three fronts. You're battling on a physical front, what's happening in your actual body. You know, there are chemical imbalances, the way we care for our body, what we eat, exercise. There's all these physical things that we can do to help this battle. There's all this mental junk, what we're talking about, these voices that we hear or trauma that we've been through, unprocessed relationships, all these things that are rattling on in our brain, that's a whole nother fight. And then there are hundred percent is a spiritual battle here. Like you were talking about before, there is an enemy. There is all these questions and, and about purpose, about why we're here. Does any of this matter? 
it's all three of those are so important. So some one of the reasons it's so exhausting is because you're fighting all three of those at once and different people kind of tend to emphasize different parts, right? So in my church experience, it was, well, you just need to pray more. And if you would just spend more time with Jesus, you wouldn't be so sad. And then I would go to therapy and they would be like, well, you just need to sit here and talk to me about the worst moments of your life every hour for the rest of your life and you'll be fine. And then I'll go to the doctor and they would say, well, just take a pill and you'll be fine. And so the, the truth is, it's like, it's such an interconnected part and, and it's complicated. It's not just a, it's going to be fixed immediately. The studies show about 80% of people will feel significantly better in four to six weeks when they start a combination of treatments. There's so much help and so much hope when you start this journey. It's overwhelming because you're like, well, where do I start? I always tell people just start with your primary care doctor. That is the, the best place. They can be a point person. They can connect you. They can refer you, but they can give you a screener right there. It's about six to eight questions. And it's just a really should be just a nice, easy place to start. You can also start counseling and talk therapy is really effective for a lot of people. Now there's a lot of opportunities for this online. So even if you live in a rural area or a place where there's not a lot of access, there's a lot of therapists who do online care and absolutely lean into the spiritual things. Don't shove those questions down that you have. Let those come up, find a community that's going to encourage you and be there for you as you wrestle with, with all these different, these different parts. And let me jump on two things you said real quick, Sam. So one, on the spiritual community, people may be listening to this that have, are not in our backyard. And you may even be in our backyard, but you don't feel safe for some reason or another to come here. That's fine. Uh, we would love to help connect you in some way or another to a resource somewhere. And if you go to, say, a church, you reach out to a spiritual leader, and that person is judgmental over you, or they're not helpful to you, then find a different one and uh, be free in that. Like you said earlier, Sam, you've got to take uh, responsibility may not be the right word, but you've got to discern for yourself the, the, the path here and don't feel obligated by anybody else. Let's talk about medicine for a minute. So I know, if, you know, I'm a pastor, I'm a Christian. Uh, I, a lot of Christians are anti-medicine when it comes to this way. I think that is terrible advice, but rather than me say why I think that's terrible advice, uh, can you tell us, have you seen any benefit from people you know or work with yourselves that, that how medicine has helped in the process? What does medicine do? Yes. Can I just take out like a billboard that just says yes times a million? It's <laughs> unbelievable that it's 2021 and we're still having this conversation. Is medicine a perfect absolute fix? No. Is it tricky to find the right thing? Yes. Are you kidding me? Like we go to the doctor to take medicine for everything else, but suddenly your brain is sick and you're just weak or you're not praying enough. Like it's, it is absolutely mind boggling to me. For me and my journey in medicine, it took me a long time to admit to even try to take medicine. Like it, it really took a lot of work in myself because I didn't want to admit and try. And I've had some rough experiences with medicine, side effects, that sort of thing. But to just outright dismiss modern day medicine, like what is it? Un I, I can't, I, sorry, I just, it is insane to me. I'm with you, Sam, so it's okay. <laughs> Beth, you have any wisdom on medicine? The only thing I would say is, and my husband said I could say this, is he went on an antidepressant um, right after we lost Jenna, and eight years later, he's still on it. And he uh, he works in nonprofit Christian ministry, ministering to homeless men who are struggling with addictions. You know, So he's a counselor, pastor, teacher, and he would say yes to medicine. He said, I still feel, I still feel grief, I still feel anger, I still feel you know, the hard things in life. And 
he said, but it helps me think a little bit differently and it helps me get over the edge. And he said he's going to keep taking it as long as it, he feels like it helps him a little bit. I'm not a doctor. I'm not allowed to give medical advice. So don't take this as that. But years ago, a very good friend of mine, uh, I was actually in some counseling and my counselor told me this. He said, Matt, he said, here's the thing. Medicine by itself can help you feel better in a moment, but it won't fix the ultimate problem. But he said, counseling by itself, studies show it can be helpful, but it may not be enough to get you over the moment. He said, but what they've actually found is a study show. And I, I've never seen the studies. I can't tell you if this is right or wrong, but he said, but the two together are profoundly helpful because the, what the medicine could do is help to regulate your emotions, regulate your, your thinking. So you can actually think through the issues and then the talk therapy can help you begin to process and heal and, and figure that path out. So for what it's worth, as a pastor in Avon, Indiana, who has no medical authority whatsoever, I highly recommend both. So I'll leave that one there for now. Let's say that we're talking to a parent and a parent comes to you and says, look, I, I don't, how do I develop a relationship where my kid feels safe enough to even talk to me and share with me? Do you have any thoughts? That's a tough question. One thing I would say is listen way more than you talk. Teens don't want to be lectured. You know, they, sorry, but they don't really care about what we experienced, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Just listen, just listen and just let them know that you're there for them. That's one thing I would say. Another thing I would say is ideally, like it would be great if every parent had this super amazing relationship with their teenager, but that's not reality. And so if you don't, find a mentor for them. Find somebody else who they can talk to. It doesn't have to be you and that's okay. But go to the work of finding someone. I'm, I'll just tell you right now, my, my son is 15. He just finished his, his freshman year of high school. And this past year, he went through a rough patch. You know, again, he's so much like Jenna. He's a great kid, fantastic kid. Uh, love him to pieces. Uh, but he just went through a rough patch, I think because he's 15, you know? He and I are really close, but I couldn't really speak into it and my husband couldn't speak into it. And so um, my husband uh, found somebody, it's a, his, uh, his youth, a youth leader, um, who also teaches pre-calc at the school that I'll be teaching at. So it's a really great connection. And Andre is 31 years old and like every other Monday night during the school year, which was crazy. I don't know how he did that, but he would just drive to our house, 20 minutes to our house, pick up Josh. They'd go hang out downtown, walk, talk, do crazy guy things. And Josh was, my son Josh was able to open up to him in a place where he couldn't always open up to Cameron and me. And we've seen a huge difference. So I know when I was a Young Life leader, they used to always I wasn't a parent then. I wasn't even, I was single, you know, but when I was a young life leader for several years and my young life leader had young kids. And I remember my young life leader who like, everybody looked up to him. Like, you know, Louis Catalo, everyone loved him. He's the one, every, all the teenagers talked to. And I remember him saying, when my own kids are teens, I'm going to need to find someone else to mentor them. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, they will talk to you because everyone else talks to you. And he's like, no, no, they won't. You know, I will find somebody else for them because that's just how it works. Reggie Joyner uh, used to be a student minister, children's minister, what would you call it, at North Point Community Church in Alpharetta, Georgia, one of the largest churches in the United States. And he tells a story, it's very common, popular, like I, I didn't make this up, but that he was having tension with a 16-year-old who'd gone on a date and he came back and he's like, hey, you're late. Where were you? What were you doing? And his son was like, yeah, I'm not going to talk to you. And he's like, what do you mean you're not going to talk to me? And he said, you know, he had to go to Andy Stanley, who was the senior pastor at, at the church. He's like, what's wrong with you? And I can't believe my kid. And Andy looked at me and said, did you talk to your parents about everything that you were doing when you were a teenager? He's like, no, but this is different. I'm a great dad and I'm a great, and he's like, it's no different. And the conclusion they come to is every teenager needs somebody else who's going to say probably the same thing their parent's going to say, but it's not their parent. Because every parent, every kid wants their parent to be proud of them. 
right? And so there's that, like, it's just difficult. There's a barrier there to what they can and can't say because they want you to be proud of them and not lecture them. Sam, what brings something to us here? Well, I mean, if there's one thing that the people listening can remember, it's like there is no study that has shown that talking about suicide leads to more suicide attempts or deaths by suicide. All the studies they have done have shown that talking about suicide makes it much more likely that someone will seek help. So there's this just big lie out there that if we talk about this, we're going to make it worse. We're going to put the idea there. Believe me, the idea, if it's there, it's already there. And as someone who has battled this for so long, one of the greatest gifts you can give someone is not to try to fix them, not to tell them what to do, just to listen and show empathy and just, wow, that sounds so hard. Is there anything I can do? But it's like, just be willing to, to walk into this really terrifying conversation. I mean, so suicide is the second leading cause of death for ages 10 to 24. Ages 10, those are our babies that are having these thoughts. There are age-appropriate ways to talk about this, but it is not too early to have generic and open conversations about what it feels like to not want to be alive. You know, I mean, the, the three of us in this conversation all experienced that in their teenage years, but just a really practical way to do that is just, it comes up in the news or the latest next Netflix show or whatever it is, just be willing to, to step into that conversation. You know, what have you thought about this? Have you ever heard of anyone thinking about this? Have you ever felt that way? Just in easy, simple ways, you don't have to push, you don't have to pry, but by showing people that it's okay to talk about this, it could be, and it might not even be today, it might be 10 years from now, but we can show them 100%, you are not crazy for feeling this way. Lots of people have felt this way. And let's get you some help to get you through this rough patch in your life. So when I posted uh, on Facebook that this conversation was coming, at least one parent responded, I was like, man, I'm so looking forward to that. It's been real for us. And, and as you guys know, through the quarantine, the pandemic, I mean, the, the mental health issues are on the rise, especially in our teenagers. So let's say you're a parent out there listening to this and you've become aware of something in your child's life. And now your concern, suicide is at least an ideation, right? It's a thought in their mind. How does a parent gauge? Do you have any scale, anything like, hey, if they're, if, if they're thinking these things, it's extremely serious. If they're thinking these things, I wouldn't worry too much. Do you have any wisdom for parents out there who are trying to figure out where are we on this? Like it's happening tomorrow and it, it, it may never happen. I say you have to take every mention of it very seriously um, because you don't know. I mean, as Beth shared in her story, you know, there are not always warning signs. And so I, I would trust that parent intuition and that hunch, but I absolutely would not let that just lie. I would find uh, NAMI.org is one of my favorite organizations. They have teen support groups. They have parent support groups. Uh, they've got tons of resources all over the country. Um, get involved. Start learning about it yourself, uh, whether that's reading a book or listening to sermons. Do Be more informed yourself of what it's like to, to go through some of these struggles and, and just be very vigilant. Um, I don't think it's, it's anything to ever be taken lightly. What was the name of that website? One more time, Sam. NAMI.org, N-A-M-I.org. Excellent. Thank you. And we'll promote both your websites here at the end of our conversation so people can find you guys and get more resources there. Beth, do you have anything to add to that? Oh, just that I really agree with what Sam said. Like, so, you know, how do you say it? They say hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, So looking back, I, I really don't think that there's any way I could have foreseen what was going on in Jenna's mind um, at the time. But looking back, like probably six weeks before her death, she had asked um, my husband and me if she could go see a counselor to deal with her fear of spiders. And she was afraid of spiders. You know, we'd go camping and she'd 
completely freak out, you know, but it wasn't that huge. And we procrastinated. It got on a list, you know, it was busy. It was the holiday season and it was on a, a long list of things to do and we didn't feel like it was urgent and so we didn't do it. And, you know, of course, looking back, it's like, I don't think that was really about a fear of spiders. I think that she knew that she needed to talk to somebody, but she couldn't tell us that. And so, you know, I think if you're, you know, it, it, when it comes to anybody, teenagers, young adults, adults, it's just like Sam said, you, t- you take it seriously and you enter into it and you say, hey, hey, let's let's walk through this together and let's see what we what steps we can take to help. I want this to come across wrong. I'm I'm not trying to promote Sam's book, but I'm going to. So the whole time we were working, all the years we were working on it, I always felt so strongly, if only Jenna could have read Sam's story. I, I don't, I'll never know this, but I honestly think she'd still be here because she, it would just, it would have opened up the conversation and just, just to hear, I'm not alone, you know, it, I am not alone and it is not weird to be thinking these thoughts and, and there is help and there is hope. So yeah, even a resource like that, it doesn't have to be Sam's book, but I highly recommend it. No, please promote Sam's book. I want to promote Sam's book. <laughs> but just like a resource like that can really start the conversation. Um, both my teenagers read it and they loved it. And, you know, and they know Sam, so they've met him. So that's a little different. But I've given I've given the book. Um, I've personally bought the book for like 10 different people and who, who've come to me since January, since this was published and just they're struggling. And I just said, hey, I have I have a book. I think it's excellent. Um, are you interested? If you are, I'm gonna, I'll buy it for you. And so I don't know. I, I just, I think that that can start the conversation that that needs to be started. One of the things I'm most proud of about that book is we worked so hard to balance the reality of what it feels like to be in that place with the hope. Like we just worked tirelessly to get that balance right because we don't want anyone to sit it's a heavy story um the book is set up that the first half my my attempt happens in the very middle of the book so you walk through a lot of the things and the stories of my life that happened and that i got there and then the entire second half of the book is the hope and it's stories of me spending a summer in zimbabwe singing worship music and i'm in haiti and i'm running a marathon and i'm starting a ministry it's all these things that I would have missed. Uh, and it's the struggle too. I mean, there's an entire chapter about counseling and how much I don't like counseling, but how important it is. But we worked really hard to balance those things because I think those things tend to get out of balance when we talk about mental health. We push too hard into the hope and we don't acknowledge the pain and, and where the person is at, or we sit too much in the hurt and we don't realize that we weren't meant to live there. I had a, um, a, a counselor for a while that became later became a friend and, and a mentor, both those things. And, and so we still have that kind of relationship. He has a theory in his counseling practice on playfulness. And his theory says that families that play together uh, have the best relationships, that when kids, the language of love for a kid is playing. And so if we want kids to feel vulnerable, playfulness creates that vulnerability by creating that relationship that I can be vulnerable. So if he's correct, and I've seen it play out in, in my own family, I think he is correct that just going to my kid and saying, you know, be vulnerable. Tell me what's going on at school. Is anybody picking on you? Do you feel safe? That rarely doesn't get us what we want. But in the middle of play in the middle of a relationship. And that could be basketball with one kid and it could be, you know, I don't know, Barbies or Legos with another kid. It's about finding a way to play with that particular kid. So that kid, what is their language and how do I connect with them in that way? And that creates the vulnerability in the space to then talk about whatever, whatever, whatever. So I totally agree with that. If you say, how are you doing? Good. You know, what's going on? Nothing. Like you can't just sit down and have that conversation. It needs to happen organically and 
through just hanging out together, playing together is a great way that things happen. Conversations also happen very, very late at night when you want to be going to bed, but that is when their defenses are down and they start to open up. And sometimes I, I think too, the conversations sometimes happen in the car. You know, just when you're out driving, you got the music on, you're out driving. And I don't know, sometimes that opens, opens kids up. You know. Okay, so I have a couple of questions. I want to take people into the hope of healing. What are you seeing God do in those kinds of things here and now? Sam, I have a question for you, and you can choose not to answer if it's too too hard or too personal. You referenced in your story um, your dad's alcoholism, but then you have on your uh, an interview you did with Milk and Honey magazine. You make this statement. You were kind of giving a summary about who is Sam things you like. And you say, I also love a good sweat, a moderately challenging house project, a steaming cup of green tea, and as much time as I can get with my friends and family. So how have you seen God heal, redeem, restore whatever those hurts from your childhood were or your past were, and maybe they aren't healed? I don't know. I'm just curious if you have any God moments that maybe could give people hope. The most uh, healing that I have ever found is from finding ways to reach back into my own story and and find people who are in that place that I was and help them however I can to be that person that I needed when I was in that place. So I mentored two boys that I met them teaching Sunday school in sixth grade. They asked me to mentor them. We met every Wednesday until they graduated. Um, I held a high school Bible study in my house for three years. I am a teacher. I interact with on average a thousand kids a week and I work super hard. Yes, it's for them. And yes, I'm just very passionate about kids knowing that they matter, that they have a purpose, that they are loved and they are seen. But it also heals something in me to pay it forward. Like I coach high school soccer. I just am constantly finding ways to put into action that healing place. I think there's a lot of feelings that I just need to sit in a quiet room and eventually, you know, I'll feel okay. And that, if that works for you, that is great, man. That is awesome. That, that's not where I feel the most alive. I feel the most alive when I'm putting my faith into action, when I'm out there in the community making that difference. Obviously, when coupled with the other things we've talked about, therapy and the doctor, all of that too. But I will say the most alive I feel is when I go out and I, I do it. Thank you for going out and doing it. Thank you for writing the book. Thank you for not letting the negative voices about nobody wants to read this, nobody cares. Thank you for not letting them win. We know where those are coming from. And we're all blessed by your ministry, brother. So I appreciate it. Beth, for you, um, as you now, like you just said, I think it was your daughter just graduated high school? Is that Did I get that right? Yes. Yeah. So how are you seeing God redeem what happened with Jenna and in your children, your family, your husband? How are you seeing God heal and, and bring redemption from that? I've seen his redemption so many times. It's usually in very little things, little things that maybe would mean something only to me, but it's God just saying, I'm here. You know, I'm here. I see you. I know you. I am not going to leave you or forsake you. That I I grieve with you. That I feel your pain. That you are not alone. And it's it just happens in a million little things. A lot of those things come through friends, honestly. So it's like he works through people. Sometimes it's a word a friend will give me. A lot of times it's just something a friend does. Or I I don't know. I I have so many examples that I'm blanking out on all of them at the moment. But just, just his way of saying, I'm here and you're not alone. And, you know, 
I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get through this with you, and I know, you know, yeah. Tell me the question again. I lost the question. You're totally fine, Beth. I, I, I caught you off guard a little bit. I was just looking for the redemption in the story. For there's a passage in Romans eight twenty eight where it says, uh, by the way, if you're a manifest friend, they love to quote this passage. It's like the root of the show, but they only quote the first part. But God works all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. And so. The way I understand that as a pastor is not that, that God causes these things to happen, but that he will not waste them. He will not let them go to waste. So he's redeeming them. And so how do you see God redeeming this tragedy in your family? I've seen the redemption um, because just I've had opportunity to share the story, you know, and it, it's kind of like Sam said before, it hurts every time I share the story. I feel like for 24 hours after I share the story, whether it's through writing or through speaking, and I, I don't, I don't speak as much as Sam and I haven't written a book yet. It's in progress. But I feel like every time, like for 24 hours afterwards, I only operate at 50%, you know, it, and, and leading up to it, I'm only operating at 50% because just like Sam says, I, I go right back to those really, really tough memories and the trauma and I relive it and, um, and it, it just hurts. It just hurts. And I still, it's still hard to believe that this is my reality. You know, like there's this thing in me that says this is not the way life was supposed to be. You know, it was supposed to all look so different. And I don't understand it. There's so much I just, I don't understand. I used to feel like I understood a lot. And now I feel like I understand very little. And yet I've seen God's faithfulness because every time the story is shared, um, I, I do get emails. I get, I've had people contact with me, contact me. Um, just a week ago, a mom who I never met, whose son had made an attempt, uh, contacted me, and she just said, "Can I? I've been reading your blog. I'm all over your blog. I don't even know how she found it." And she said, "Can I? Can we please talk?" And we talked for three hours, you know. And our stories, our situations are different, you know, but there there was a lot in common. And so just to see God use that story to, like Sam said, to help other people, to show other people that they are loved and they're not alone. There's redemption in that. A lot of the redemption I've seen in the loss of Jenna has come through just knowing Sam. Just getting to work on his book together and help tell his story and just to know him and his friendship. And I would do anything to have Jenna back, you know? But she's not here, you know? But just through the years, a few years now of friendship with Sam, God's I mean, there's a very tangible proof. God saying, hey, I can still bring something good from this and something really beautiful and something fun. You know, it's not all work and, you know, just tears and heartache and pouring out your soul. I mean, I just, I laugh a lot with Sam and it's just, it's him saying, look what I can do. Like, I shouldn't even know Sam. It's just even crazy the way, crazy. If I told you, Sam gave you the short version of the story. I could probably talk to you for an hour, honestly, about um, just how I even quote, met Sam online and just the whole thing with him coming to Greenville to speak and stay with my family for, you know, nine days when he didn't even know us and just like the whole story. It's like, okay, like you are a God of redemption, you know, because I could not have made this happen. And this is just insanely crazy that it did, you know. So there's a, there's an example. I did think of one. So.
So I have a phrase I use at my church, and that is, if things seem too ironic to be ironic, perhaps that's a good time to just pay attention and say, maybe, Sam said the universe, maybe, maybe God is up to something. You know, maybe. I don't know where you are, people listening, in your walk with God, your understanding of God, your process with God, but maybe if things really crazy, ironic things are happening, maybe just stop and pay attention there. Maybe maybe God's working something for the good there. Sam, you want to add to that, or you want to tell us that story? For me, yeah, it's just been a lot of small yeses. You know, my redemption story didn't start with, you know, big speeches on stages or podcasts. It was just little yeses of, you know, I'm going to tell this story to the 10 kids in my Bible study. That's how it started. I hadn't told anyone before. And then it was a small yes of, I'm going to write this on my blog. I don't know who's going to read it. It's pretty scary to put that out there, but I'm going to. So when we think about God doing big things in our lives, for me, it's not like it's, just little decisions over and over every single day that, that lead, have led to much, much bigger things. And, you know, my friendship with Beth is just, it's just one of those many things. It was, you know, some person I'd never met on the internet sending me a long email and deciding, am I going to respond? And then deciding, am I going to take this invitation to a state I've never been to, to people I haven't met to, and it just, just a small yeses that lead to some some of the best things in life. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you both, your vulnerability, your willingness to share. So you can find Beth Sadati at bethsadati.com. That will be linked in the show notes. And you could find Sam Eaton at recklesslyalive.com. Also will be linked in the show notes. And you could buy Sam's book at Amazon or wherever you buy books online today. Um, do you have any other resources or places that you could point people to that you want to make sure we highlight here, guys? Yeah, so on my website, I have tons of information. Um, if you're experiencing it yourself, Beth has created a whole bunch of resources for anyone who's lost someone to suicide. Um, I mentioned NAMI.org before. The National Association of Suicide Prevention is one of my favorites. There are a lot. There are more resources than ever to to help people with this. Thank you for tuning in to this interview with Beth Sadati and Sam Eaton. We truly hope that you were encouraged, blessed, challenged. But we also know there's still more to be said. That's why if you would subscribe and like this podcast and wherever your store is, you could continue to get our podcasts when they drop. Next up, we have an interview with April Bordeaux and John Munn. They both are counselors at Care to Change. Care to Change is a counseling ministry in our community here in Avon, Indiana and Brownsburg, Indiana. And they're going to come in and share even more professional wisdom on the topic of suicide and also on the topic of mental health. We look forward to sharing that information with you. As always, you can find more information in our show notes about how to get a hold of Beth and Sam and learn more about their ministries. Look forward to seeing you next time.